0: Hello. We want to take a second to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts, Disgraceland. If you like music, pop culture, and true crime, this is the podcast for you. Through host Jake Brennan's deeply researched storytelling,
1: you'll hear all about the lives and crimes of musicians like Jerry Lee Lewis, Jay-Z, the Rolling Stones, and so many more.
0: And now Disgraceland is expanding to include artists, actors, athletes, and other icons from Anthony Bourdain to Andy Warhol. Full episodes are released every Tuesday. Check out Disgraceland Plan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever
1: you like to listen.
0: Goodbye. Hello. Hello. And welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Calgara, And this is the end of the year. The last, almost second to last day, right? It's New Year's Eve Eve. Right. That's the one. Yeah. You're all partying, cuddled up at home, I hope. Yeah. I hope you're pre-partying into New Year's Eve, the greatest party of the year. Uh, can you imagine going out on New Year's Eve these days <laughs> as an adult human? Oh. I sometimes am at a gathering, mm-hmm. a very low-key gathering,
1: where they will have, like, the Times Square ball drop in the background. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I just, <laughs> I I immediately stress out. I immediately have to pee. Yeah. I immediately am wearing high heels and a small dress in 40-degree <sighs> weather. Yeah. Like, how do they do it? They're under 30. That's how. They just must be hot, like they just going out into the world
0: must bring them
1: just the greatest of rewards. You know what
0: I think it is? I think it's a bunch of people who are newly in love. And so they're warmed Mm -hmm. and excited by that. Like there's no people who have been in seven year relationships at the ball drop that are going down to times square on New Year's (laughs) Eve. Exactly. They're not talking shit. I'm in
1: one and it's the fucking best, but Hey, but yeah, you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Also, they can't sell, like, tickets or anything to that,
0: do oh, they? Oh, I don't know. I bet you can buy, like, VIP section areas that have, like, an actual toilet. Because we've all heard of the diaper, that people wear diapers. and What? Yeah. I have heard that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because you have to hang out there for... 14 hours to get your spot and so people wear diapers so they don't of, because okay none well of the,
1: that's yeah that's its own fetish that's people doing that on purpose and using me as an excuse
0: they're I mean, like oh yeah. yeah yeah i have to be in times square that's right. what it is yeah well you know the times square tgif isn't gonna let you use their fucking bathroom no i bet you had they have like four security guards on that bathroom Absolutely. that night anybody
1: that comes in like with a with a frosty sheen and a red nose they're like get the hell out.
0: <laughs> oh my god, it was Santa and you just kick Santa out. Oh wait, that's first. I
1: Christmas. swear to god I just I just had uh well, yeah, it's the holidays, the holidays here. It's no. like someone trying to prove they just had boneless wings. <laughs>
0: And a and a bucket. What are those, like a bucket of like fucking uh, Mai Tai that they all shared around the table? <laughs> Corona minis. I just drank yeah. so many Coronas. <laughs>
1: you have to let me use this bathroom. God, that would be. No, no, no. no. no you don't can't worry. make me. Guess what? No one's going to make you do it this year. Please don't. Although I think we've talked about this, but I told you about um my friend who is from the East Coast and he used to go watch them fill up the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade floats. There's like a big warehouse oh. out by the airport or something. Cool. Wouldn't that that's something I would because it's also
0: like yeah. almost like. Away from the crowd. You have yes. to know about it to go see it. And you take a little hit off that helium on the side. Hey, man. hey <gasps> you like, can I, I get a... I love Snoopy. Or whatever. <laughs> Whichever one you like the best. I love Snoopy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was just me playing the character of myself it's on me. helium.
0: I love Snoopy. Uh, I really do. Drunk helium, Karen. How about that? Oh. She really doesn't handle things
1: well. <laughs> Amazingly drunk helium Karen is even louder than normal
0: Karen. That's that's how she defies the odds for partying. Mm, well, we hope you guys are all doing things. Keeping sane, keeping in therapy. Staying healthy. Don't go
1: to any don't go to any event where you have to wear diapers. <laughs> or do, if that's your thing. Or fine. No kink shaming.
0: But Absolutely it's more not. like yeah
1: it's more like what's good really what feels what feels good to go do that yeah Don't let us yeah boss you around anymore Don't. not anymore or do because we're kind of good at it <laughs> <laughs> i mean
0: i think the diaper advice is is good, solid but that's up <laughs> to you and your own individual need yeah we would never tell you not to wear the diapers if that's what makes you happy I'm just going to break it down in this way. It's
1: so cold. Mm-hmm. And oh, then yeah. you're wearing a diaper filled with frozen pee oh, under
0: your sparkly dress oh. or what have you. Oh, and that's all I'm saying. It doesn't cut a good figure either. The bulky diaper with your what I think low cut jeans are in again. If I oh no. Somehow. But high cut diapers. High cut diapers, low cut jeans. <laughs> This is truly evergreen. This conversation it really is. This this could be used year round. In fact, this is the new opening of every single episode we post from twenty twenty two. We'll just go in and we'll dub over Easter or whatever <laughs> yeah. weird holiday. Don't wear your Easter diapers Diaper. this year.
1: This is this is absolutely the kind of opening where one of my aunts would dip in and try to test out to see what all the cousins are talking about. Yeah. Oh, this is Karen's podcast. She talks about diapers the whole time. I Adult. She
0: talked about crime. No, I guess um, no, it's a it's a real dirty podcast. It's a diaper shaming podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do a little update? Yeah, let's get into and, this because let, everyone. Let's move this thing along. You know, getting ready for New Year's and they're like, can you guys move on, please?
1: Or what I love is like, what if there's somebody out there that's getting ready and then getting directly into bed? Like just after that third layer of mascara, then you just get straight, straight under the
0: covers. Honey, I support you in a diaper. Yes, in a diaper. Because they're like, I'm gonna sleep through January 31st and (laughs) first. I refuse to even fucking open an eye. And so diapers are gonna happen. Look, we're saying there's so so many positive sides. We support you sleeping through New Year's Eve is everything is mostly what we're saying.
1: That's what I've been doing for the past week. Solid. <laughs>
0: um, All right. Well, real quick on before we get to more stories on the Exactly Right Media, our actual Can You Believe It podcast network, the great podcast Bananas is releasing their live Halloween episode. Oh, that they reco- was the special guest on that episode? I don't know because they recorded it, Dynasty Typewriter, and I'm the special guest. Me, Georgia Hardstark. That's right. It was got it right. So fun. I was out in the world. It was my first live show since quarantine. And it was just like, oh, there's so many people here. And they were all in costumes. It was awesome. Perfect. Also, did you get any popcorn? No, they didn't. I I really love they served popcorn there. Oh, shit. Katie Levine, their producer is in fucking trouble for not offering me popcorn backstage. She's like, Hey, that's not in my job description. Fuck you. I'm an actual producer. She's like, I got you hairspray. Like I can't get
1: you popcorn. I'm not, I'm not your assistant. Go to hell. Go to H E W L. Also, our final installment of the celebrity hometowns is with our wonderful and immensely talented
0: friend, Megan Malali. So check that out. What a dream she is. Love that woman. She's so supportive of us and we really appreciate it. And then today is the last of our weekly December donations. So this week, we're donating $10,000 to Feeding America. It's a national network of food banks, and we're really happy to be supporting them. Yes. And you can actually, if you would
1: also like to donate to Feeding America, you can go to their website and find a food bank near you that you can support directly, Mm. or you can just donate to the organization. So check out their website and you can figure out if you would like to make a direct donation or... However you'd like to do it. If you can, we know a lot of people are, aren't are in that spot right now. And sure. that's the whole idea that we had with this is just being a little like out there with the giving because yeah. this is a time where lots of people are in need. And so it's a good thing to do. It makes you feel good if you can do it. So why not encourage others? That's
0: right. And if you can't afford it, give some blood. That's always an option.
1: Or you know what? You can also just kind of try to be a good present person in the world. That's also helpful. (laughs) We need that just as much as anything else. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Point. Oh, I'm getting real philosophical at the end of this year, 2021. (laughs) We're wrapping this mother down. You
0: hated this year, I think. This year
1: was five years. (laughs) Everybody does that where it's like, it clearly time isn't, it doesn't change because the year changes. But I do think people need this vacation and people need a reset. Yes.
0: Well, that's what a new year always brings is like that clarity of like, okay, I'm starting from here. I know it's going to end here. And like, let's just make this one Like somehow more positive than the next. That's the only way you can like get through life, really. Yeah, true. Also, you go, there's, there's a real
1: clarity that comes with standing in Times Square (laughs) peeing in your own
0: pants. (laughs) I won't let it go. I can't believe you've never heard that before. I've never heard before. Oh, I love it. Oh, I'm so glad that I was able to impart that on you because that was a real joy to me. I
1: mean, it makes perfect sense. It actually answers. It's like when I was little and I would watch Gilligan's Island and be like, why won't they show the
0: bathrooms? What do they do? <laughs> what do they oh. do? They're not not going to That's the bathroom. You're the only one who's interested in where Gilligan shits, essentially.
1: I am. I, it's just like they have so many coconut cream pies that I know there must be a men's and women's
0: facility. Yeah, coconut is a diuretic, as we all know. I don't know. That's true. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is devolved from a place of devol of It has devolved from there. I am devolved by this episode already. My apologies. I'm doing it. I'm the one doing it. This is going to be voted the best episode of our podcast in uh, 2021. Oh, I can't for wait sure. for our awards to come out. <laughs> then we can vote for ourselves <laughs> from the awards we created. The <laughs> exactly right podcast awards. It's just all us. It's the exacties. It's the exacties. Yeah, we just nom- nominate ourselves for every category.
1: Kind of I actually put on a sweater tonight because it's so cold in Los Angeles. Oh, I like, put a sweater on. Look at you. Congratulations. Thanks. Just like my dad would
0: love it. Don't turn the heater on. Put a sweater on instead. I am. Don't get me started on that. Okay. Being with with married to someone from the Midwest who's like, it's not cold. You don't have enough clothes on. But being (laughs) someone me from Southern California who's like, I hate wearing layers and I hate clothes. I want to walk around freely in my fucking house. You know, I hear it. It's like I was really upset because I was like, well, I can't wear my house flip flops.
1: I have to put a pair of socks on. Absolutely
0: not. No. You get it's the very freedom difficult. to wear your diaper and your flip-flop whenever <laughs> and wherever you fucking please. And that includes Times Square. That <laughs> includes Times Square or your very front living
1: room. Whatever place you desire. <laughs> <sighs> your heart's desire. You going to fire that jacuzzi up? Yeah. Uh, you know, I had it. We turned it on when Nora was here. There is something about going into a jacuzzi alone that is a little too dark for me this holiday season. It definitely feels like the beginning of a horror movie. Yeah, you just sit there staring and then you're then you just hear like twigs snapping and it's not, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah, yeah, as yeah. sexy as yeah. you'd want it to be. Where you are just kind of like, oh, yeah, no, it I was... could have just taken a bath and done this <laughs> no, privately. That's a good point. Oh, shit.
0: <laughs> done this privately. It was great when I lived in the old apartment building and I'd go to sit in the jacuzzi and Gus, the jacuzzi cat, would like literally keep watch. Like he'd sit next to my head. And if anything came around, I could tell he was, like, aware of it. His head was on a swivel. It was, yeah. He was covering your... He had your back. He was my guard jacuzzi cat. He was on your six? Is that what it's... Is that About your six? I'm on your six. It's
1: like a Marine... uh, It's an army thing.
0: Oh, I thought it was a J-Lo thing. I didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, J-Lo wrote a song. It could also be something about being on your six. I'm not sure. Like being up on your... Yeah. Well... We did a just
1: fascinating conversation. (laughs) It's it's point by point, point, counterpoint. It's just interesting and compelling. This is this is what it's like at Yale. (laughs) Okay, wait, are you first this time or am I? I think you're first. Karen goes first. You're first. murder and here's the important note that promo code is all lowercase so
0: go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level that's shopify.com slash murder
1: again don't forget the code is all lowercase
0: Goodbye.
1: guess what i'm gonna do to wrap out this year oh fuck what I'm going to tell the story of the Miracle in the Andes, the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crash. Are you ready?
0: Oh, my God. Is this the soccer one? Rugby, yes. Oh, my God. You know, this movie scared the shit out of me as a child. It's horrifying. I watched it as, what, an eight-year-old? Yeah. And I still think about it. So this is a great. it's is great. I'm, I'm excited.
1: Now, did you get drawn into it because it was a little bit um, publicized? Like, it was kind of a heart-throbby movie. There were so many... Cute young oh, actors in it. A lot of And hotties. so, yeah. Yeah. So everyone's like, oh, let's go see this. <gasps> true story. It's like really intense. <sighs> true story. But it's a great movie. It's a fucking great movie. If you haven't seen this movie. Alive. Is that what it's called? Yes, it is. Okay. It's called Alive. Wait a second. Sorry, Stephen. Let me just. I should have looked this up before it just hit me that I should have looked it up. What? Just to see who the cast is, because I'm only thinking of Billy Crudup right now, but I don't even know if that's true. It is your Ethan Hawke, your Josh Hamilton, your Vincent Spano. Oh, he's a classic. Your, <laughs> your, <laughs> you've got your,
0: your John Malkovich is in it. What? What? Was he? I didn't know he was in it. Hottie. Classic hottie. Classic hottie, John <laughs> Malkovich. <laughs> oh, uh, Josh Lucas. Jo- he's
1: Josh Lucas. Oh, Dave Cubit. Looking good, Dave Cubit. <laughs> uh oh. Um, ah, sorry. The just, rails and into I the just diaper. I off by myself looking at my phone and cheering
0: on the cast of a 1993 film oh, okay so i was like 12 then so i was prime ready for hottie hot hots for fucking me you're ready for hottie hot
1: hot and you kind of thought oh is this going to be like the outsiders and then you're like it's true <laughs> it's horrifying oh, but it is amazing it's yeah, an it's amazing wonderful uh survival story so i'm going to tell it to you now please if you've seen the movie just wait till you hear the audio only my version. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> okay.
0: No, I'm excited for this. This is great. I, I, I haven't seen it since it was in the theater, so this will be a fun...
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to remind you of a couple things. Okay. I pre-apologize for, of course, all the mispronouncements of many of the people are from Uruguay, and I don't have the natural pronoun... I'll give it a really honest-to-goodness try. Okay. Sources for this... Uh, from an article in National Geographic by Simon Worrell, an article from History.com by Kieran Mulvaney, an article in Britannica.com by Amy Tickannon, and then of course... The Wikipedia page Uh. of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. So we are going to start on Thursday, October 12th, 1972. And an amateur rugby team from Montevideo, Uruguay, the old Christians Club rugby union team is what they're called. Mm -hmm. They board a twin turboprop airplane and they're taking it from Montevideo to Santiago, Chile. The rugby club's president, Daniel Juan, has chartered this turboprop airplane. So it's little uh-huh. and they chartered it from the Uruguay Air Force. And so that the team could fly to Chile to face off against an English rugby team, the old boys club. So there's 40 passengers and five crew members on this flight. So 19. Of these passengers are members of the old Christians Club rugby team. Mm-hmm. And then the remaining seats are taken by the team's physician, Dr. Francisco Nicola, Dr. Nicola's wife, Esther, and then
0: some team family and friends who basically came to support them for this game. Okay. Forty is not that tiny. Like, I was thinking of a tiny, t- like, you know, teeny tiny plane. Oh, yeah, no. It's chartered from the Air Force. Okay. So it's a decent sized plane. Kay. Yeah, It's like a solid. Yeah. It's not like a tiny little charter plane.
1: No, I think the name Turboprop is misleading. Yeah, yeah, Because it makes you think of like a little Cessna that has 12 people in it or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Pretty big. Okay, so one friend had to cancel last minute, mm-hmm. so they gave this a seat away to a woman named Graziella Mariana who was traveling to Santiago for her oldest daughter's wedding. Oh. So she's just kind of there. her ride. You know, because she got the chance to travel, yeah. <sighs> so the pilot colonel... Julio Cesar Ferradas is an experienced Air Force pilot with over 5,000 flight hours and 29 passages over the Andes Mountains. So he has experience. Mm-hmm. This isn't like his first time. Um, he's overseeing the flight and he's also training his co-pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagurara. Okay, so they take off, and they're on their way, and then a storm rolls in mm-hmm. over the Andes Mountains, like, mid-flight, and they actually have to make an emergency landing in Mendoza, Argentina, because the conditions are so bad up ahead. Um, so they spend the night, the crew and the passengers spend the night in Mendoza mm-hmm. to wait out the storm, and by morning, the conditions are still rough. They wait a few more hours, and then they finally decide to depart again uh, at... 218 on Friday, October 13th, 1972. Okay. So, technically, there's a straight path westward from Mendoza to Santiago, and it's about 120 miles. And if they travel along this path, that requires that the plane has to fly 25,000 to 26,000 feet to clear that section of the Andes. Mm-hmm. And this plane can go as high as 28,000 feet, but that's the maximum. And it has a full flight with lots of heavy gear, luggage, people on board. So basically, it's too dangerous for them to just fly directly over the Andes. So the pilots decide instead to take a U-shaped route that dips to the south before going west again. And although it extends the trip 370 miles, that's only an extra 90 minutes. And then they're much safer because they're only flying... At eighteen thousand feet,
0: so they're basically going around the mountain instead of over.
1: Yes, exactly. So they they basically are going they're going out of their way so they don't have to just go straight over. Got it. The edge. So when they finally do start to pass over the mountain range, the co pilot. La radios air traffic control to let them know that they should reach this place called Planchon Pass Mm -hmm. by 321. This is the point over the Andes where air traffic control in Mendoza hands off their flight tracking duties to air traffic control in Santiago. Mm -hmm. So the skies are cloudy up in the mountains at Planchon Pass. So the pilots depend on radio navigation to determine where they are. So basically, they have to do this all by radio signal. So at 321, Lagarara radios air traffic control, telling them they've just gotten through the Planchon on pass. And then the distance from there to Curico, which is the nearest radio beacon, is a, is roughly around 40 miles. It should take them about 11 minutes. But the pilot radios traffic control, telling them that they plan to reach Curico in about one minute. So at around 324, three minutes after crossing the pass, Ligarara radios air traffic control again, saying that they're now turning north and are requesting permission to start their descent. Hmm. And that descent is authorized. So the plane dips down from 18,000 feet to 11 thousand uh, five hundred feet but what both the pilots of this plane and air traffic control don't realize is the plane has not yet cleared the andes oh, so they no. don't they don't know where they actually are oh, they're, they're like, off they're pre okay got it yep yeah. so they think they've cleared it and yeah. they haven't even come up to it yet oh, sure. so they are now descending too soon So as the plane descends, the passengers begin to feel heavy turbulence because in reality, they're getting really close to the mountains, which is, you know, creates the turbulence. The rugby players start joking about the turbulence. They're tossing rugby balls around. They're making up songs about it, you know, kind of trying to be macho and brave. But then a couple players look out the window Mm -hmm. and they see that they are much closer to the mountains than they should be. Then the plane takes, a st- all of a sudden takes a steep climb. Uh-huh. until it's practically vertical it's time to go straight up in the air oh, no. because the pilots have realized that they didn't they don't actually know where they are and they're uh-huh. too close to the mountains and it begins to stall and shake the plane's ground collision alarm starts going off the pilots throw the plane into maximum power hoping uh-huh. that they can pull upwards and away from the mountains in time the nose of the plane makes it up and over the ridge but the tail does not clear it and at 3:34 p.m. the tail... The plane clips the ridge and basically hits begins the the plane crash. But it's not just the tail. Then the plane's right wing slams into the mountainside and is ripped off the plane entirely and taking what's left of the plane's tail and the entire back of the fuselage with it. So that includes the vertical stabilizer, the baggage hold, the galley, and two rows of seats from the back of the cabin.
0: Oh, no. Three rugby.
1: Yeah. So this is basically a, a, a really horrifying beginning of this plane crash. So. Immediately three rugby players, Gaston, Costamale, Alejandro Aunie, and Guido Magri, as well as the navigator Ramon Martinez and flight attendant Joaquin Ramirez, are all immediately killed. Ugh. Seconds later, a mountain on the other side of the plane rips the left wing off. Ugh. Two more passengers, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valletta, they fall out of the back of the plane. So basically the back of the plane is a gaping open hole. Oh, I remember this from the movie. As the fuselage descends. It's horrifying. Just having fucking flashbacks. (gasps) Yeah. The plane drops from the sky and basically lands on the mountain face. And then it begins sliding for about 2,400 feet. And then when it hits a snowbank, it stops. But the impact crushes the cockpit killing the pilot, Veratus. and it also loosens several seats from the mm. ground in the cabin, and it sends four passengers flying to the front of the plane and killing them. Oh. Their team physician, Dr. Francisco Nicola, his wife, Esther, Eugenia Parado, who's a rugby player's mom, and Fernando Vasquez, who's a friend of the team. Oh,
0: God.
1: Yeah. So the co-pilot, Lagarara, is badly injured, but he's still alive in the cockpit. And he actually begs one of the survivors to shoot him and put him out of his misery. Yeah. But the passenger can't bring himself to do it. And Lagarara ends up passing away from his injuries later that night. So Ooh. it's just chaos. It's absolute. It's chaos, but it's also carnage. It's horrifying. Yeah. Okay. So. In the immediate aftermath, 12 passengers have been killed, leaving 33 survivors stranded on a glacier 12,000 feet up in the frozen Andes Mountains, right along the Argentina-Chile border. Mm. So there are two players that are on this flight, Roberto Canessa and his friend Gustavo Zerbino. Not only have they survived with minimal injuries, but they're both first-year medical students. Ooh. Yeah. So they quickly tend to every survivor that they can get to, prioritizing those with the most severe injuries and patching people up as best they can. So that alone is a miracle. There are two, like, basically doctors in
0: training on this flight. Because I was going to say how, I mean, a double whammy, it is that the physician died because he could have helped so many people.
1: Right, right. So we've got some physicians in training. Right. So they actually, R- Roberto and Gustavo end up removing a piece of metal from the stomach of one of their teammates mm. named Enrico Platero. Um, and they actually have to remove some of his intestine along with it. Mm. But they end up being able to like do this impromptu surgery and keep him alive. Damn. So they execute it and they patch him up and he survives. Yeah. Another teammate, Arturo Nogriera, suffers from two broken legs and Roberto and Gustavo stabilize those breaks as best they can. But basically Arturo is rendered immobile on the glacier because they, they just have nothing to work with. Yeah. Um, several of the passengers, both teammates and family members um, and friends, suffer compound fractures. The young medical students do their best to patch up those and protect them from infection, but none of the people with compound fractures ends up living for very much longer. Mm. After the first night on the glacier, another five people die. The co-pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguera, Francisco Abal, Graziella Mariani, who is the woman who was traveling to her daughter's, oh. um, wedding. Yeah. And Felipe Macarien and Julio Martinez Lamas. But despite these tragic losses, there's one recovery that appears to be the biggest miracle of them all. Um, teammate Nando Parado was hit in the head during the crash, and he got a skull fracture that put him into a coma. Ooh. He remains unconscious for three days, but when he finally awakes, he's at, he actually is okay physically. Holy shit! He just wakes back up, but sadly, after he comes to, he learns that his mother has died in the crash. Ooh. His sister, Susanna Parado, who's only 19 years old, who is also aboard the flight, is alive when Nando awakes, but she's suffering from a terrible injury of her own. And she will end up actually passing away on day eight. So it's really horrible because there's it's then becomes like triage inside of this crashed fuselage Mm -hmm. where they're already in snow. Like it's a horrible situation. So when air traffic control realizes that they've lost contact with the rugby team's plane, they immediately seek help from the Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service, which are called SARS, unfortunately. But let's give them this. So they're, for this, they're SARS. Using the last radio signal sent out, the rescue team pinpoints an area where the plane most likely crashed in one of the most remote and difficult to access regions of the Andes. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So knowing they're gonna need more help, SARS immediately reaches out to the Andes Rescue Group of Chile. So they no one does any of that dumb bullshit that we hear about a lot of like, oh, we'll handle this or this is our thing. They're immediately like, it's about the rescue and it's about getting people out. Yeah. Yeah. So these agencies team up to scour the area to search for the wreckage. But the plane is white, which makes it virtually impossible to spot oh. in the snow from the air. Fuck. Right? It's I never even thought about that I when I watched the movie. No. It's a what? obviously, as many planes are, it's a white plane. Funny. So they search well into the night and into the next day. So that next morning, which is now October 14th, 1972, the survivors can see the search planes flying Mm -hmm. overhead. Thinking quickly, one of the survivors finds a passenger's lipstick and goes up onto the top of the fuselage Mm -hmm. and tries to write SOS in big letters. Smart! Right. But then realizes they don't have nearly enough lipstick to finish the actual letters S.O.S. or make it big enough for anyone to see as they go by. Three rescue planes pass over right over the crash and don't see it. The search goes on like that for eight days. But after one hundred and forty two hours of searching, the rescue team has to call it quits. The frozen conditions, the high altitude and the unforgiving terrain of the Andes leave the search parties doubtful that anyone even would have survived the impact or could continue on surviving days later even if they did survive the initial hit. So the search officially ends on October 21st 1972. Now the rescuers only hope is that By summer, which is December, because we're in the Southern Hemisphere, the snow will have melted enough for them to recover the victims' bodies. So that's the best they're hoping for. But little do these rescue officials know, there are 28 survivors left on the glacier, and as you know if you've seen this movie, they have an unwavering will to live. Hell yeah. So most of the survivors have never even seen snow and now they're facing temperatures as low as minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't
0: even think about that. They're from fucking Chile and Argentina. Like, of course. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's like it. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's it's like being from
1: Orange County and then being like, now you're crashed in Tahoe. Good luck. <laughs> 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 Good luck with your flip flops. Yeah, out. And- <laughs> yeah. try to figure this shit out. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Um. So, and it's so cold. It's insane. So yeah. they make a shelter out of what's left of the fuselage. They all cram together inside the cabin the first night, which is actually only an eight by 10 foot area wow. that they all have to get into. Yeah. Um, Then the whole back of the plane is ripped off, which leaves them exposed to the whipping winds of the mountains. Mm-hmm. So they have to use luggage, broken seats, and other random bits of debris to make a wall to insulate the fuselage better. hmm Then they realize they're going to need water. So player Fito Strouch comes up with the brilliant idea of ripping the aluminum paneling from the underside of the plane seats and using it to reflect sunlight Mm. down to melt the snow Mm. so they set up this whole system where basically they put out empty wine bottles to catch this melting snow that's coming off of these strips of aluminum Mm -hmm. and even though it doesn't produce water very quickly it is a perfect plan just to set up and keep them hydrated and you know just one more thing to keep them alive yeah yeah They also tear apart the plane seats and they use wool for blankets. They strip the insulation from parts of the galley and make sleeping bags out of it. And they use pieces of the plastic screen from the cockpit to make themselves sunglasses so (gasps) that they don't go snow blind. Oh, snow blind. Isn't that smart? Yeah. Yeah. They even discover that if they need to urinate after the sun goes down, it's better to do it inside one of the rugby balls to prevent having their pee immediately freeze to themselves. So if they go outside, that's all that's going to happen. Yeah. Like midstream, I guess. I mean, if it's minus 22. Yeah. Haven't you ever heard of like when you live in Chicago and it gets really cold in the winter, your snot freezes? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, I had people warn me about that when I moved to Chicago and thank God the year that I lived there it was like a mild winter yeah and so I never experienced that because it never got that cold <sighs> I think it has to be like 10 10 or 10. zero or something but um yeah that never crossed my mind I've yeah. been in like cute snow never in like real Yeah, snow. Su- sunny snow that you're yeah. like immediately you go inside and sit by a fire right yeah not serious snow no as Roberto Canessa would later joke, you get very smart when you're dying. Oh. So they had to, they basically ha- are having to outsmart things they've never even thought about yeah. before. So as we know, we who have seen the movie. Mm-hmm. This the group of survivors is faced with a severe lack of food. So the only food left in the plane after the crash are eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, uh, a small assortment of <laughs> Karen, so Karen, you're bummed.
0: disgusted. The so
1: tin of mussels in the middle like of a plane crash. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> tell them I was a good person. You can have my mussels. <laughs> um. Okay. Tin of mussels. Go on. A small assortment of nuts and dried fruits. Uh Nando Parado describes the extreme rationing that he had to restrict himself to within the first three days after waking from his coma, Mm. surviving on just one chocolate-covered peanut. So this is what he says. On the first day, I slowly suck the chocolate off the peanut. On the second day, I suck gently on the peanut for hours, (laughs) allowing myself only a tiny nibble now and then. I did the same thing on the third day, and when I finally nibbled the peanut down to nothing, there was no food left at all. Fuck. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. as the days wear on, their hunger grows so intense that they make an impossible decision. They agree that to survive, they will have to eat the flesh of the dead passengers. Oof. Yep. Some take longer to come around to this idea than others, sure. of course, but ultimately the desire to live outweighs the mental and emotional hurdles that they all have about eating human flesh. The survivors decide that their friends would want them to consume whatever protein and fat they mm-hmm. could to stay alive, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true. Eat me. If I, I, I ever
0: fucking, if you, me and Steven and Rana playing on a <laughs> <plane to> Argentina <laughs> through the hands. On an, a Uruguayan Air Force, Plain. Yeah you're, yeah you're welcome to it well
1: also it's just that it's it's just for the person that has to do it but it is like yes if, if you've already died you'd be like please do yeah. whatever you can to live i'm on the
0: donor list for a reason
1: yeah hell yeah okay the survivors then make a pact amongst themselves that if they, too, die, that they would be happy to put their bodies to the service hmm. of the rest of the team. So they all are basically like, look, we have no choice. We yeah. have to do this and this and you can do it for me. And, we'll, right. you know, that's like the idea. Love it. So because of his medical training, Roberto Canessa takes it upon himself to cut the strips of meat from the bodies. Whew. Yeah, horrifying. So on day 11, October 24th, some of the remaining 27 survivors find a small transistor radio stuck between the plane seats. Mm. So there's a tech-savvy rugby team member named Roy Harley, and he figures out how to make an antenna out of some of the electrical cable that's from the the plane crash. So even if they can't use the radio to communicate with anybody, they can at least...
0: Tune into the reports being broadcast to the outside world. Whoa, that's gotta kind of suck to be like, I just wanna talk to you. And all I hear is fucking like Peggy Soup, some easy listening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know.
1: (laughs) So when Roy finally gets the radio to work, they manage to tune into a news report about the crash. Oh. And the news they hear isn't good. They find out that the search was officially called off three days earlier. So, of course, the group falls into deep despair. Their hopes of being rescued are now dashed. But in that moment, player Gustavo Nikolic shouts, hey, boys, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've called off the search. (laughs) And then everyone gets super pissed at Gustavo. Uh And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's not good news. And he goes, it is because it means we're going to get out of here on our own.
0: Ooh, wow, Gustavo. This is a fucking positive person. This is like, come on, everybody, buckle down. You yeah. gotta get serious. Yeah.
1: So, for the next few days, the survivors discuss venturing out to get help. They remember that the co pilot mentioned them being close to Curico, and they figure that if that's true, then the Chilean countryside should only be a few miles to the west. In reality, It's more like 55 miles to the east, but they had a theory and they were trying to go with it. Okay. So some of the group had tried venturing away from the plane in the early days of the crash, but the dehydration, the altitude sickness, bitter cold nights with no shelter sent them back to the fuselage. Yeah. Traveling a far distance in that terrain seems next to impossible to all of them, but still they keep discussing how they might be able to make it work. And then, it's October 29th, around midnight, all the survivors are asleep in the fuselage, and a fucking avalanche hits.
0: That's right.
1: It's so disturbing like, and upsetting oh in the movie. God. It's like, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. They were just getting, like, their water set up, and they're, you know, yeah. actually eating something and not, yeah. you know. Ugh, it's so horrifying. The snow piles not only on top of the aircraft, but inside it, filling the only shelter with so much snow that all the space that remains is a roughly three foot gap between the snow and the ceiling Mm. all the way down the length of the remaining fuselage. Mm -hmm. Eight of the 27 survivors die immediately, mm-hmm. including Marcelo Perez, the rugby team captain and the group's de facto leader, as well as Liliana Methol, who'd become a mother figure for the boys. And the other six victims are Enrique Platero, Daniel Mespons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and Gustavo Nicolik. Mm-hmm. The one who yelled, we're going to get out of here on our own. Oh. The remaining 19 survivors are now trapped inside the fuselage and the oxygen is running out. Fuck. So Nando finds a metal pole and he manages to poke a hole through the ceiling of the plane up through the snow and getting them air to breathe. Whoa. It takes them two days to tunnel out of the fuselage. <gasps> Holy shit. Yeah. But as soon as they break free, a blizzard hits. No, I mean, fucking it ravages the glacier and forces everyone back inside the fuselage and they're trapped once again. And so once again, they start talking about the idea of a group going down the mountainside to try to go get help. Like that they just can't stay here anymore. So most of the group is reluctant to go, but four of the players volunteer Nando Parado, Roberto Canessa, Numa Turcati, and Antonio Vizintin. So the rest of the group gives these guys larger food rations and the warmest clothing. Mm -hmm. They spend a full week resting to save their energy for the trek. And when they finally venture out, they think they should be heading west. But there's a mountain. There's basically a whole mountainside in their way. Mm -hmm. So... They first head east, hoping that the trail will kind of loop them back around westward, so they'll be going in the direction that they believe Curieco is. Mm -hmm. After a mile of walking, the guys then come upon the tail of the plane. What? And inside, they find more food, so they find a box of chocolates, three meat patties, and (gasps) rum. Yes, it's a feast. They also find extra clothes, they find some medicine, and they even find a few comic books. So they spend their first night sheltered in the tail of the plane, building a fire, and reading comic books to keep their spirits oh, up. Oh, thank fucking God. I know, for real. But then when they venture out the next day, they spend their first night sleeping outdoors and they nearly freeze to death. Yeah. Yeah. The daily temperatures are getting higher because summer is approaching, but the night temperatures still dip well below freezing. And they realize they won't be able to survive another night without shelter. So they decide to head back to the airplane tail. And there they find batteries that they think could be used to power that two-way radio that's back at the fuselage. Mm. And they figured they should bring those batteries back and then try to power the radio and try to call for help because this idea of them just walking, yeah, walking isn't gonna work. Yeah. So then they realize the batteries are too heavy to lug back with them. So they hike back to the fuselage and then they take the two-way radio down mm-hmm. to the tail part mm-hmm. and they also take Roy Harley, who's the tech-savvy player. Um, he tries to connect the batteries to the radio. It doesn't work. Mm. They all head back to the fuselage to regroup and make up a new plan. So two weeks later, on November 15th, Arturo Noguera dies. And three days after that, Rafael Ekevarin also dies. Both of them had infected wounds that had developed gangrene. Mm. So basically, they die you know, after horrible infections, Oy. by December eleventh, which is day sixty no. on the glacier, No, mm-hmm, Numa Turkati dies of starvation. Mm. Numa was unable to eat human flesh; couldn't do it, and his weight had dropped to just fifty five pounds.
0: Oh my god! So,
1: yeah, horrible. What a horrible... So it's clear to the survivors that without another attempt at walking towards civilization, they're all going to die on yeah. the mountain. So they need to find a way to sleep through the night without shelter. Their answer comes in a form of quilted bats of insulation that they are able to take from the plane's tail and they figure they sew them together Mm -hmm. and then double them over and they make one huge sleeping bag that three guys can get into. Mm -hmm. So they basically sleep wrapped together through the freezing night
0: yeah, man. So December-
1: you gotta fucking happen. Yeah, exactly. So on December 12th, 1972, Nando convinces Roberta Canessa and Antonio Vizintin to venture back out with him again. The guys spend a few days climbing up the mountain, thinking the Chilean countryside will be just over the peak. They bicker over the best way to go. They endure blustery winds and they manage virtually impossible climbs. But once they're at the top... All they can see is more icy mountains in every direction. So when they're looking, Nando spots two peaks off in the distance in the west that do not have snow on them. And he figures there must be civilization in that direction. The only problem is it's going to take them much longer to get there than they thought it would. So they decide to send Antonio back to the fuselage so that they only have to split the remaining food rations between the two of them. So, because the journey back is all downhill, Antonio sleds down the mountainside (gasps) using a seat cushion from the plane, and the path that took them days to climb only takes an hour for Antonio to slide back down. (laughs) Holy shit. So, he just, I mean, that would be the weirdest feeling, because in the midst of horror and like these nightmarish conditions, suddenly you're on the most fun ride for an hour.
0: Just kind of sliding your way back down. But how disappointing to you to be like, we just risked our lives for a couple days and that took it was nothing.
1: It was nothing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So as Nando and Roberto continue their journey, Nando says, quote, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Mm. Yeah. So it takes several more days, but Nando and Roberto managed to hike all the way down into the valley that Nando spotted from that mountain peak. Then once they're down there, they see the San Jose River, which is always a great sign in any of these like wilderness right. horror stories. You find yourself a river. You are halfway home. Yeah, that is that's the dream. So they find this river and they just walk along it and it eventually brings them to the snow line and that's where they finally see signs of human life which is abandoned camping gear and grazing cows. Great. Now they know they're they're at least near somewhere, yeah. someone somewhere. Yeah. On their ninth day of travels, they stop next to a river. They're completely spent. They they can't hike anymore. So they decide to stop and build a fire and basically set up for the night. Mm -hmm. But as they do, across the river, they suddenly spot three men on horseback. Mm. So they start shouting to the men for help. But the river's roar is so loud that the men can't hear them. God damn it. But then they spot Nando and Roberto. And they managed to communicate to them that they're coming back tomorrow. Okay. So, you know, over the roaring river, they yeah. basically, with a bunch of gestures, are like, we'll be back. We'll be back. Okay. And they do. They come back the next day. Only this time they've come prepared. They have a pencil and paper tied to a rock, and they throw it across the river <laughs> to Nando and Roberto. So the the guys write a note saying they survived a plane crash. Up in the Andes, that they're incredibly weak. They need help and that there are 14 others that still remain up at the crash site. They throw the rock back over the river and one of the men on the other side who's a muleteer, which is a person who transports goods via pack mule. Mm-hmm. And his name is Sergio Catalan. He reads the note aloud to his companions and he'd heard about the plane crash and none of them can believe that anyone could have survived not only the plane crash, but then all that time. Yeah. Way up in the way up in the peaks in the Andes. So guys, Sergio Catalan and his and his two compatriots, they ride for 10 hours by horseback to get help at the nearest village, which is Puente Negro in Chile. There they go to the police and the police contact the Chilean army. Oh. So Roberto and Nando are later brought by horseback to Carrico, and they're fed and given the chance to rest before being questioned by army officials. They tell the officials where the rest of the group is stranded. They point to the location on a map. They figure out that it took them 10 days to hike 24 miles, and both of them had lost almost half their body weight. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they made it out of there, like, in the nick of time. On December 22nd, 1972, the Chilean Air Force sends in three helicopters to rescue the remaining 14 survivors. But... Because of space and weight restrictions, and because the fuselage is in such an inaccessible spot, Mm -hmm. they have to break up the rescue into two-day shifts. No. So, yes. So, on this first day, they pull the first seven people out. Four of the emergency personnel then spend the night in the fuselage with the remaining survivors until the helicopters can come back the next day and finally bring (sighs) the the remaining seven survivors home. Oh, what a bummer to be one
0: of those fucking... Right.
1: Second tier. You'd just be like, no, I think I have to go now. I think it, I think I need to be on this first flight out. Definitely. So in all of the 45 people that took that flight that day, only 16 survived the 72 days. That is over two months trapped in the Andes mountains. Yeah. News outlets all over the world cover the story, of course. But when the survivors reveal that they had to eat some of the deceased to survive, Mm -hmm. they are met with negative, a negative response. Mm -hmm. But when the survivors meet with and talk to the families of the deceased, the families are compassionate and they're understanding about the impossible position that these survivors were put in. So no one... No one that's close to the situation judged them or had anything negative to say. Right. That's just all all the people that are sitting warm and cozy in their homes, (laughs) never having risked anything in their lives.
0: Yeah. And knowing that, like, the the survivors would have done it for the deceased if it had been on the other, you know, or like would have been okay with it. It's like... Yeah.
1: Yes, no one wants to do that. No. Like, clearly. It's outrageous to be, pretend like you stand against it. Yeah. As if they in any way liked that. I and mean, it's it. just yeah. Yeah. so obnoxious, so tabloidy. Yeah. So okay. Authorities have to wait for the snow to melt on the mountain to recover the the people that were lost. Mm-hmm. The victims' families agree to a mass burial near the crash site. Um, the wreckage is then burned down to its metal frame. And every year, the remaining survivors try to get together on December 22nd to honor their experience and commemorate those who were lost. As for Roberto Canessa, he went on to be one of Uruguay's top pediatric cardiologists. <sighs> He says he's grateful to be alive and that his experience taught him to do something positive every day and to strive to be better than he was the day before. Hmm. He tells National Geographic, quote, every day when I look at myself in the mirror, I thank God the same old jerk is staring back at me. (laughs) Oh, and that's the unbelievable story of the miracle in the Andes, the survivors of the crash of Uruguayan flight
0: 571. Holy shit. I'm freezing now, by the way. Like suddenly it's so cold. (laughs) It's unbelievable.
1: That's why I had to put a sweater on. Oh my God. Just the the idea of it.
0: Hold on. I'm I'm, like
1: literally,
0: I genuinely hate being cold. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into, whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve. The key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's journey has that and more. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Wow. Great job. That was. Thank thank you. you. That was upsetting. Yeah. (laughs) In a good way. Like you did great. right? Yeah. You can overcome anything if those guys got themselves out of the Andes. That's right. You should, uh, be happy you get to see the same jerk in the mirror every morning. I am. <laughs> <laughs> be grateful for that jerk in the mirror. All right. Well, today I'm covering a story that I had never heard of until I read an article about it in Atlas Obscura. So this is... The story of their roaring 20s tabloid darling, the bobbed-haired bandit. Ooh. Uh-huh. Old-timey. Well, 1920s-timey. Yeah, it's pretty old. Yeah. 100 years. Oh, my God. You're fucking right. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Oh, okay. Uh, so the article on Alice Obscura was by Lauren Young. There's also a New York Times Daily News article by Mara boveson uh, an article on a blog called Jackie O, but it's J-A-Q-U-O by Jackie Jackson. An article <laughs> in ephemeral New York and a blog post article on fish rap by Torreya Galloway, uh, floridahistorynetwork.com and New York Times article by Stephen Duncombe and, and Andrew Matson, And they also wrote a book called The Bob-Haired Bandit, the two of them. So 1920s, Karen, let me tell you a little about it in the U.S. Okay, I know you... You've forgotten so much about it. I'd love to hear. It was a great time. <laughs> it was a great time for all of us. Mm-hmm. Economic prosperity, post-World War I partying, referred to as the Roaring Twenties or the Jazz Age, societal and cultural changes were uh, challenging that old Victorian, you know, proper style of both societal norms and fashion. The 1920s is recognized as the decade in which fashion entered the modern era. Women began wearing more comfortable clothes, like shorter skirts and even trousers, abandoning the more restricting styles that had been worn in the past. And they also began taking on more, quote, masculine activities like sports. They entered the workplace in large numbers. And so the style of clothing evolved along with the women's more active lives. So kneeling skirts and dresses became socially acceptable, as did smoking cigarettes. And of course, as you can see on my head, a bobbed haircut. And of course, this is a stark contrast to the proper Victorian style of beautiful long tresses and buns and shit. Of course, women got the right to vote in 1920, thanks to the women's suffrage movement and prohibition in the U.S. began in January of 1919. The ban on alcohol helped usher in the age of bootlegging and gangs, ruthlessly taking over lots of crimes and a feeling of lawlessness in many cities. Lauren Young from Atlas Obscura said, quote, the era of prohibition in the early 20th century was a period marked by poverty, deep schisms in social class, gangs and high crime rates. And of course, we've all heard of the famous men of the time who robbed banks, but took everyone by surprise when a female robber started holding up spots around Brooklyn with what was dubbed as her, quote, baby automatic in tow. (laughs) The first robbery took place on January 5th, 1924 at Thomas Ralston Grocery in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, when a petite, pretty young woman ordered a dozen eggs from the shop's clerk. As he's preparing the order, the woman, who's well-dressed in a sealskin coat, A beaded gray dress and black shoes and nylon suddenly pulls out her 25 automatic pistol from her fur coat and yells for the clerk to stick him up quick. Mm -hmm. Her accomplice kind of is standing towards the back of the store, but he's an intimidatingly tall for the time, six feet tall man. He's got two guns drawn, stands there quietly. He's kind of just there as the muscle. The woman is in charge of the operation, and she gets away with a total of $680, and the man drives her off quickly in a getaway card. Hot. Hot. $680 in today's money is? <sighs> $2,800. dollars mm One oh, more, more guess. $680 in 1924. Oh, $10,000? $11,000. Good job. Ooh! Right. Thanks for giving me a second. Yeah, I, I knew you knew it. <laughs> uh Now, at the time, of course, women were involved in some criminal activity, but it was more like as the accomplice of the dude, like they'd hide a gun for him or they'd give him an alibi. And so this woman, soon dubbed the Bob-Haired Bandit, was new and super exciting for New York City, especially at a time where like journalism was all about tabloids and front page splashy bullshit. The story of this brazen woman who was seemingly easily able to evade police fascinated the public and everyone wondered who this badass could be. But the truth was actually much more humble. In reality, the bobbed haired bandit Celia Cooney was just trying to feed her struggling family. Mm -hmm. So Celia was born in 1904 in a New York City basement apartment, and she and her eight older siblings lived in poverty and were neglected by their parents who had no education. With a father who drank heavily and didn't earn enough to feed the family, the children were sent out to beg in the streets, and they were eventually placed in the care of an aunt. In 1919, at the age of 16, Cecilia left the family and got a job as a laundry worker. And then in 1923, at the age of 20, married the tall, super hot Ed Cooney, a 25-year-old auto repairman. Yes, uh Ed. What's up, tall guy? Just standing behind his woman, yeah. just doing her bidding. Yeah, like you be in charge. I'll get the getaway car. I'll handle this back door. Right. I'll just be tall when everyone else is short and handsome. He was hot. Yeah. They were very happy together, but unable to afford more than the basics just arrived. They lived in a small room in Bedford, which is now Bedsty. Uh, in Brooklyn and Celia became pregnant and kind of got worked up because she dreamed of providing her small family with more than what she had endured as a child. And at the time, you know, you saw this like highfalutin life in magazines and shop windows and in movies. So the people who were working class who couldn't afford that kind of thing, you know, on their salary kind of had to, had to go without, but dreamed of a bigger life. And Celia did too. Still happening to this day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Ceiling and Ed start to devise a plan. With Ed's access to a gun and a getaway car, they decide to rob a grocery store. And after that first robbery, when they got away with 22 times Ed's weekly wage as a welder, 22 Mm -hmm. times, with which the couple used to leave their single-room residence and rent a two-story frame house in Brooklyn and they also filled it with pricey furniture they knew they had to continue their crime spree <laughs> they're like hey it worked <laughs> and that's when the lazy boy was invented <laughs> <laughs> their next two robberies at an amp and a bowhack which i had to look up to make sure were small grocery stores and they were they netted only about $365 then they started getting tons of media attention you know, everyone was fascinated by this petite woman who was robbing fucking stores. But the press was both positive and negative, depending on where you stood regarding women's rights. So they kind of people would kind of use it to prove their point at the time, the term flapper You know, it had a risque dress, signature bobbed hair, was used to describe any free-spirited young woman who challenged social norms. And so the bobbed-haired bandit was a perfect poster woman for this kind of new liberated woman. See what what they do when you let them vote? See what they do when you let them smoke? Exactly. See what they do when you let them ride a bike? And let them cut their hair? Andrew Mattson, the co-author of the Bob Bandit book, said, quote, she became such a big sensation in the papers because she was the woman with a gun driving a fast car. And that was exciting. It was titillating. Both for those who saw her as an example of female empowerment and those who used her as an example of what was wrong with the modern woman and her newfound independence. Mm hmm. Stephen Duncombe, the other co-author of the book, said, quote, how Celia was portrayed had less to do with her and more to do with the presumed biases of the audience of the papers and the editor's and reporter's attitudes about gender. As the couple's crime spree continued, targeting mostly smaller businesses like drugstores and little grocery markets in Brooklyn in a similar fashion as their first robbery, their media coverage expanded. As the public ate up the story, casting the, quote, girl bandit as a Lady Robin Hood, mm-hmm. and the story was blasted on the front pages of the papers. Meanwhile, the NYPD police commissioner, Richard Enright, was ridiculed and chided for his inability to catch the bandit, let alone a female one. Oh, she's a girl. The girl and your ego hurts. So he's super embarrassed and he made catching the bob-haired bandit his top priority, stepping up his efforts to catch her and what they called her, quote, tall companion. It's up Ed? (laughs) It was called the bob-haired bandit and her tall companion. (laughs) So they put together, it was like 200 detectives and even gave the detectives the go-ahead to shoot on site. Oh, shit. Yeah. Even though they had never harmed anyone, they just stuck them up. Yeah, but they, they don't care about that. No. So he puts up roadblocks and tells his officers to stop and question any woman who had bobbed hair that seemed, quote, suspicious <laughs> Jesus. Uh-huh. and arrest if need be. Uh, in fact, author F. Scott Fitzgerald said that his wife, the famous Zelda Fitzgerald, who, of course, had that awesome flopper style and also had the audacity to drive a car which made her suspicious that she got stopped on the queensborough bridge in queens and accused of being the bandit herself Mm. yeah on january 14th the police commissioner enright announces that he had caught bandit claiming it was this 23 year old actress named helen quigley she gets held in custody for a month and a half, but it's not fucking her. She's not the bandit. Obviously <laughs> Celia is. So Celia goes and holds up a drugstore, gets away with $50, but leaves a note at the drugstore for the police commissioner telling them they had the wrong girl. And in part it read, quote, you dirty fish peddling buns, Leave <laughs> this innocent girl alone and get the right ones, which is nobody else but us. We defy you fellows to catch us. Uh, she fucking, she's fucking baiting them. She's like, stop being so lame. Yeah. Let this girl go. That's very girl
1: power of her.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. But meanwhile, despite an estimated 16 robberies, the couple were only bringing in just enough to get by. Plus Celia was now close to giving birth. So she's visibly pregnant, which is like a (laughs) (laughs) kind of adorable. (laughs) Right. Yeah, which made her obviously more identifiable and it's super risky for them. So they devised a plan that would be sure to bring in a large payday. They planned a heist of the payroll office of the National Biscuit Company warehouse. (gasps) Nabisco, (laughs) which is that what it is? Yeah. Oh shit! Nabisco. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Nabisco. Fun cracker reveal. Oh my god! Diapers and crackers. That's what this episode's (laughs) all about. And this would prove to be their downfall. So on April first, April Fool's Day. Might I point out? 1924. I don't know if they had that back then. I bet they did. <laughs> they made their move, but while holding up the cashier, a man named Nathan Mazzo, he tried to stop the robbery, he basically, like tried to grab Celia by her arm. She stumbles backwards and falls over a chair. And sweet Ed sees us and, like, is like, oh my God, you hurt my wife. Shoots Uh-oh. at uh, Nathan. S- He's fine. He only, like, oh, good. he barely injured him by shooting him in the leg. And the couple flees without the $8,000 that was in the open safe.
1: Oh, no. Like, they just get out of there. Shit.
0: And the uh, cashier is only slightly wounded. And it was the only time anyone was ever hurt in their crime spree, which they had, I think, discussed ahead of time to make sure it never happened. Um, But it also spelled the end of their, their crime spree. The couple fled New York on a steamer. They go to Florida to lay low. And on April 10th, Celia gives birth in Jacksonville, Florida to a girl and the couple name her Catherine. But sadly, the baby dies within a few days of being born.
1: Oh, no. I
0: know. I think because they were in hiding. So she didn't have access to medical care. You mm. know. Back in New York, the shooting, of course, sets off a huge manhunt for the couple. And on April 15th, the police are able to figure out the identity of the couple because the warehouse they had hit was so close to their home that an employee there was able to identify them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The police commissioner then discloses the identity of Celia and Ed Cooney to the public And they're able to track them down to Florida. I heard two versions. Either they had been tracked by searching maternity wards in the area, or it was the undertaker who gave the baby the burial that led them, led the, Um, that led the police to them. I know. So sad. That's the much more tragic. It is. Ending. Yeah. The couple was found hiding out in a grimy Florida room just after midnight on April 20th, 1924. And they were taken into custody and put on a train to face trial in New York. Celia was just 20 years old when they were arrested. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And Ed was 25. So they're brought back to New York and thousands of people rush Penn Station to see her as the train arrives. Like she's mm-hmm. famous. Mm -hmm. But by this time, they had all kind of changed their tune about her and everyone is supporting her because they found out that she's not this like rebellious, liberated woman. She's a mother and wife trying to get out of poverty. So, of course, they all support her um, despite the cashier being injured.
1: That was more of a and at this point, I've cast um, Henry Cavill as in the role of Ed, the dutiful yet silent husband. Which one's he? and? Henry Cavill is, he played Superman. He's the Witcher. Oh, okay. you know, yeah, that hot, the hot British guy. Hold on. Let me
0: look Beefy. Oh, hey. Nice face. Yeah. He hey. kind of had like a, it had like kind of a boxer look. Like it was a boxer. A little He's bit. more of a tough guy face, a little tough guy, but damn, that guy's hot. He can play whoever the fuck he wants. Well, I was just going to say that it would
1: also be, even though we don't want, Nathan Mazzo or whatever the, the clerk's name was mm-hmm. who got shot in the leg. Mm-hmm. We don't want that to happen to him mm-hmm. or any Italian man. But, <laughs> but, but it's the husband's passion for the wife. It's his, his need to protect totally. her. It is very kind of like, uh, well, I guess Robin Hood's not right because they're keeping the money for themselves right. to buy nice furniture. Right. Right. But it is very, it is a sweet,
0: Very sad story. Yeah. Desperation. It's not.
1: They're not just doing it.
0: Right. They're breaking the law and they're doing something wrong and bad. However, we can kind of we can kind of side with them in a way as people who were just like in a tough situation and didn't have means to get out of it. And she was 20. Like, she was 20. They're very they, young.
1: They're young and desperate and that this is what happens to people. Yeah, and madly in
0: love. Yep. Totally. The Witcher. What? The Witcher. <laughs> <laughs> he can totally play that. I mean, the old the photo that I'll post of them, they look like your grandma and, like your hot grandma and grandpa back then. You're like, "Oh, grandma and grandpa were good looking." Like she's teeny tiny and adorable. He's like, huh? They went and fought for it. They went and got theirs. They fought the law. They fought the law. With violent crimes. (laughs) Right. The couple both plead guilty and are sentenced to a maximum of 20 years in prison. They're paroled after seven years. They're released on October 16th, 1931, still fucking devoted to each other. What's that? Can you imagine their love letters in prison? Like, hey, we really
1: shouldn't have done that, you know? (laughs) I love you, anyway. Hey, Ed, I love you. Ah, Ed, your long white hair. Why do you keep talking about being the witcher?
0: (laughs) Why'd you shoot that that nice (laughs) Italian boy? That was stupid. At least you could have grabbed the money at the same time. I mean, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it when we get out of jail. But that wasn't so smart. (laughs) they have two sons together patrick and edward jr here's a sad part ed develops tuberculosis and dies in
1: 1936
0: oh i know so that so she's a young single widowed mom now she gets a job as a typist works her butt off as a single mom to raise her kids she keeps a low profile at this time she had done one interview with our hearse Hertz Hearst magazine for a thousand bucks before she went into prison, but afterwards she was like, eh, that maybe yeah. wasn't. I'm now twenty-seven and I think that was a bad idea. I don't know. she, she regretted it, but she just kind of laid low. She did.
1: She had to go to jail. Yeah, yeah. She had to go to prison. Yeah, but she looks she pretty. She looks
0: pretty smiling, cute in these photos. <laughs> uh, She's just a little bit like, yeah, this is fun. Oh well. Hey. She later remarries, moves back goes back to florida moves to florida she doesn't talk about her sordid past at all she doesn't even tell her grown sons about it Mm. they said in one of these articles that when she gets alzheimer's she's dying she mentions having done it and the son's like clearly you're just making this up and she would always try to like leave on her own and go back to new york and get brought back home by the police and get and he's like she was really mad about it and i didn't understand she probably was like fuck this you know want to go back to new york they just figured it was something she had made up well they didn't know shit they didn't know her celia cooney the bob haired bandit died on july 13th 1992 oh wow after which her sons learned more about their mother and learned about the secret she had kept for 50 years wow i know this is why you ask your grandparents about shit at christmas and what's today never again
1: will will a bob-haired bandit go un (laughs) unrecognized within the family just started like this hey grandma did you ever rob a grocery store grandma did you ever cut your
0: hair short and go a little crazy in the 20s (laughs) i'd love to hear about it that's right her crime spree lasted just 61 days total But her brazen acts and modern style made her a feminist icon and an anti-hero for the working class in 1920s New York, or an example of all that was wrong with the modern woman gaining her independence, depending on who you asked at the time. Mm -hmm. But like a lot of us, Karen, she was a woman in a tight spot who wanted to make a better life for her family. And that is the story of Celia Cooney, the bob-haired bandit and her tall accomplice. Ugh. I love
1: them. I
0: know.
1: I mean, we're not usually on the side of the criminal.
0: No. But yeah, yeah, I like Celia Coney's style. Yeah. 1920s was a lawless time. You know, you're just trying to a little bathtub gin. Yeah. Hold up a grocery store. Yeah. And like, it's It's like furniture. The thing, too, of like, there's no middle class. It's like you're rich as fuck or you're poor and you're working class. There's no in between. And like, there's no there's not a lot of ways to get out of that working class, you know, poverty. And I think a lot of people probably saw that and were like, fuck it. Crime. I'm robbing the people who have more of an opportunity than I do. And fuck it. You know, not to say that that's right in any way. But I think that's seems like that was the thinking back then.
1: Well, just, just desperation. Yeah. What are you going to do? You're going s- to sit there and starve or do something about it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's just it. It's like there need to be, there needs to be support and services for people who don't have, because that's the only choice you give them when yeah. there aren't yeah. like when you're, when you try to punish people for being poor right. and being locked into the, the s- s- cycle of poverty. Yeah. It just creates desperation yeah. and desperate measures. Totally. Yeah.
0: Having no options or opportunity in life will cause people to do desperate fucking things and, you know, like bob their hair and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> Hey, I you know what? You. I'm gonna do both of those things tomorrow night <laughs> on New do Year's it right Eve. Right now, <laughs> uh, great job! Thank you. A nice capper for 2021. Thank you. We got through it. You know, we're gonna look ourselves in the mirror on January 1st and say, "I'm glad I'm still here with this idiot." Glad this old jerk's still here. That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, we yeah. can. You can take it and say whatever line you want to yourself. Thank you.
1: It's really, it's really open for interpretation, <laughs> depending on what your deal is. Oh, let's wrap it down. Hey, party. Do your thing. Yep. Wrap the year up. Mm. You can pat yourself on the back. You got through. Yep. Next year is going to be a fresh, brand new look, all even numbers. As a, you know oh. me, passionate
0: numerologist, I'll tell you that 2022's <laughs> got good vibes already. That's right. You know this is get ready a, for it. This is a clean diaper year for everyone. <laughs> Oh, no, <laughs> i like, sorry. I can't get off. You of it. brought it back. I can't, brought be, it back. <laughs> I can't get off of it. I don't know why. I'm like now obsessed with the visual of like a fucking mini skirt, a sequented mini skirt and a diaper underneath. It. Oh, oh, It's so yeah, things could be worse. You guys, things could be worse. You could be in a diaper in Times Square. That's right. Right. So keep that in mind. Keep it in your heart.
1: And also do us a favor and stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Happy New Year, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production.
1: Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton.
0: Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen. Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray.
1: Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at MyFavoriteMurder at gmail.com.
0: And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at MyFavoriteMurder and Twitter at MyFaveMurder.
1: And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to MyFavoriteMurder.com.
0: Rate, review, and subscribe.